I want to welcome you here to the Dean's Dialogue. Thanks for coming out, especially during the reading week. Hope you're enjoying the talk, John. Um, these, these conversations have been an interesting springboard for us. Now, the title, What Would You Do With $100 Million, garnered a little bit of conversation, is a springboard to talk about how and how is it possible to do good in the world. And we're exceptionally fortunate to have Dean Greg Jones and Dean Sam Wells here to talk with us and to listen in on their conversation. Now at the end, there'll be about 15 minutes where we have a time for question and answer. So as they talk, if, if a question strikes you, jot it down or try to remember it for the question and answer time. We don't need a lot of introduction. We don't want to take away from the time for the, from the conversation. But I would like to say that I've had the privilege of, of uh, working for both of these deans. And there's a lot of folks Every, every Christian institution has its problems, right? And a lot of people are happy to point out the flaws in Christian institutions. There's very few people who are willing to say, I'm going to be a part of enlarging the vision of what a Christian institution can be and how it can do good in the world more broadly. And both Dean Wells and Dean Jones are those people who can look at the bigger picture, and see how to make it better than, than, than it has been before. And so with that introduction, I'd like to turn it all over to Dean Wells and Dean Jones. Um, well, uh, Greg, everyone can see you're a good-looking guy. Um, and, and the question in everyone's mind is, how does a, has a young, good-looking guy like you already 10 years ago uh, 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 a well-established theologian end up becoming dean of a divinity school what what on earth did you think you were doing <laughs> can i answer what i do with 100 million yeah, instead right, yeah. uh, well it's actually a good question um the short answer is it's my family business and so you know just had a certain inevitability when uh, one of my kids didn't want to go through confirmation. They, they had this sense of anxiety because they thought that somehow maybe becoming dean of a divinity school was a family obligation. And they actually asked, uh, do I have to be confirmed in order to become a dean? Um, so there is some history to that. My father actually is one of my predecessors here as dean of Duke Divinity School. Uh, he was a seminary president before that. Um, and uh, so there's a certain sense of in which it was uh, part of the family. I actually tried a fair bit to go back a little bit before being a dean of a divinity school to avoid going into the ministry at all. It, it, uh, there's lots of generations of family, historically and contemporaneously. Um, and so I went to business school after I finished undergrad. I uh, was in an MBA program, and it was in a statistics class trying to decide how many tires would need to be defective out of a shipment before you sent the whole shipment back, and I thought, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. So I switched to the public policy and administration side of the program uh, and was ready to go into that world. This is 1981. Uh, Ronald Reagan had just been elected president, uh, and I was nominated for a presidential fellowship, which was designed to bring in talented people to Washington. Um, but you had to be hiring and at that time, the only agencies hiring were the Department of Defense, the Army, the Navy, and the uh, Marines. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go to seminary for a year and see what that's like. 
Um, and I came to Divinity School and I found that it was asking the questions that I'd always wanted to uh, ask and address in my life. Um, and proceeded to be ordained, then went off to teach at uh, Loyola College in Maryland uh, after finishing my PhD. Loved it. Uh, loved teaching undergraduates and could have been quite happy with that uh, for a very long time when the call to consider coming to Duke as Dean of the Divinity School came. And there really were two big questions in my mind. One was uh, that I knew that I had certain kinds of administrative gifts, that there were things that I'd learned at Loyola. I directed a Center for the Humanities, which was an interdisciplinary center that I really enjoyed. I was the first non-Catholic chair of their theology department. And I found it pretty easy to do things that seemed to take some of my colleagues a very long time to figure out. And so I thought, well, I could do that. Um, and the second component was that Duke Divinity School had been a place where Susan and I had met, where we had uh, developed great appreciation for the school, and I'd seen too many other institutions that had declined or fallen apart. And so I thought, if I have these skills, and it's an institution I care about, then being willing to uh, put on a tie instead of wearing uh, casual clothes to the office and uh, shifting from reading and writing and teaching to uh, doing administrative work on behalf of a larger good and on behalf of an institution seemed to me something well worth doing. And uh, now it's 10 years later, and uh, I still seem to be enjoying doing it. Can I push you a little bit further than that? Because, because for a lot of people in this room, many of whom are, uh, are either teachers or, uh, or students in this institution, um, for many people, the, the fascination is the subject, is God. Uh, and 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 the history of texts and individuals who've interacted with with that subject in significant ways. Uh, and for other people, it's humanity that's the fascination, and they're teachers, or they want to be pastors, and to 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 embody that those ideas in in what we sometimes uh, call real life, but we learn not to use such phrases at the Divinity School. Um, but, but there's a third kind of way of being which you seem to embody, which, is, which, is, which obviously involves some of those things, but, but has an institutional element. And it, it seems to me that there's, there's, there's been a generation of maybe more than a generation in the last sort of 40, 50 years, which has, particularly in theological circles, though probably in, 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 in humanities departments, more broadly, has, has taken for granted that institutions are somehow part of the problem. Um, so, so actually seeking to be an institutional leader or accepting the church's call to be an institutional leader, if one puts it like that, is, is actually almost a, a countercultural thing to do within church circles. Mm. Could you say a bit more about how you see that? Yeah, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said I was leaving the ministry or leaving the world of teaching to become a bureaucrat, I could have retired and wouldn't have to answer your question about $100 million. Um, because there is a, there, there's a prevailing kind of assumption, especially in Protestantism, uh, that institutions are at best necessary evils. Uh, that, and there's, a, there's a, both a cultural and a theological way in which it gets cast. I think it's a particular problem from the generation from the 1960s 
which uh, was anti-institutional for some good reasons and some problematic reasons, but carried with it a, a kind of romanticism that if we could just get communities right, get people to love each other, we wouldn't need these awful, dreadful, big things called institutions. It got linked to a peculiar Protestant liberal theological understanding, which kind of all of a sudden forgot that there was an Old Testament and had Jesus kind of dropping out of the sky and getting together with 12 of his friends into a kind of uh, proto-hippie commune uh, to say, now we're just going to love each other and the world will be a wonderful place. And unfortunately, that kind of legacy persisted uh, in, in many ways. And it was a... Um, so that you have varying versions. You have, you know, Jesus and his disciples are really good things in the Gospels, and then you get this dreadful, awful thing called early Catholicism, uh, which is when the institution sets in, uh, and um, varying ways in which that gets articulated. But the consequences for the forms of human life uh, are really uh, dreadful when you have that kind of method. That's part of what I think happened to a lot of seminaries, a lot of uh, theological institutions, including churches, was because they paid bad attention to the task of administration, uh, they actually ended up getting co-opted by bureaucracies uh, in, very destructive, uh, in very destructive ways. Pivotal for me along the way in thinking about that was a uh, conversation I had with a Luther scholar who was pointing out to me that in, in Luther's lectures on Genesis, even Luther, who's known for having... Um, the, the notion of the law only as a law as a restraint against sin, that in Luther's lectures on Genesis, he'd actually said, even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, the law would have been given to give structure and form to human life. And that had become important to me to think about, and it became important in the work I was doing before I became dean, uh, a book that became uh, Embodying Forgiveness. Uh, I started out with very naive notions of what that book was going to be, and then slowly I began to realize that part of the reason we trivialized forgiveness in Protestantism, and particularly in the broader culture, was that we had turned it into a transaction between two isolated individuals, uh, or between an individual and God. And we'd lost any sense of the larger structures of a church, and the forms, including sacraments and other rituals, that are really important to give shape to that life. Uh, and so then it became a broader question of, what are the institutions uh, that... Um, we need, and how do we give shape and form to them? How do we think about them theologically? How do we think about them Christianly? Um, and uh, giving more attention to that, I think, is really critical to sustain and empower the work of the gospel uh, in the world. Uh, the last thing I'd say about it is just that, uh, you know, the 60s was filled, and unfortunately it's a rhetoric that's pervasive today, that we're all supposed to speak truth to power. And there are important times where that's really crucial. And there's certainly that dimension of the prophetic uh, task. But the image of that phrase is somehow, I always have the truth and someone else has the power. And what it does is it blinds pastors and others to the question of how we use power in Christian ways. Because any pastor, anybody who's in any kind of responsibility in an organization is charged with using power. And if we always carry the image that power belongs to somebody else, then we're going to become co-opted by it and actually not be able to discipline it or reflect on it in Christian ways. Now let's, let's start thinking about this money we have sitting uh, as the large elephant in the room. Hmm. Um, Judas 
Judas looked after the money <laughs> for the uh, the apostles. Um, and, and it's amazing that one isn't able to find treasurers for local churches uh, or even finance administrators for divinity schools, given the scriptural history of the profession. Uh, not, not being I'm glad that. you shifted to the financial administrators instead yeah, of the right. deans. I thought I would, that's the uh, uh, equation. Not, not being entirely rosy uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the exegesis. Um, you've talked about you know, this ambivalence about power uh, in the church, certainly in the last couple of generations. Uh, do you want to say something a little bit about the ambivalence about money? It seems to me, uh, I mean, there's one influential literary critic who, who, who says that if one sees, sees the, the Gospels as a romance, one feature of romance is that no one ever says who pays for the hero's accommodation in a romance. You know, and, and you get that slight, and you do get little hints in the Gospels that there, you know, there were people like Joanna, the wife of Chooser, in the background, who seemed to be bailing out the, uh, the apostles on their freewheeling uh, journey around uh, around the Holy Land, uh, but there's not a lot of reference to how, you know, who paid the hotel bills and so on. Um, you do have Joseph and Matthias. Yeah, he coughs up for at a pretty crucial some, moment, yeah. actually, yeah, yeah. Um, so there are these shadowy figures in the background who, who, who have money, but they're shadowy. Uh, so could you say a little bit about, about what it means to be handling significant amounts of money? Uh, particularly in, in the sense that there's an assumption that really uh, that money should all be going to Africa and we shouldn't really have any of it here. Yeah. Well, first, um, I think Americans in particular are very bad. Harold Bloom says that Gnosticism is the American religion, and so that's not unlike the notion that we're, we're going to have the, the Roman Empire, you're not going to ever deal with money. Um, so a quick story about a Presbyterian church that I spoke at um, to just give some sense of this ambivalence. Um, uh, when I was in Baltimore, Presbyterian Church invited me to come and talk about the Presbyterian's sexuality statement uh, that had just come out. And everybody was all in, uh, up in arms and big, huge arguments and fights. And I said, no, I wouldn't do that. And they said, why? And I said, because uh, they want me to do six weeks. And I said, because you all have already divided up sides. You just want to know which side I'm on. And I really am not interested in just going and doing that. And they said, well, we have six weeks, and we pay an honorarium. Will you come? Uh, and I was you a young assistant I'll, professor, and I said, I take honoraria, and that'd be fine. I'll put Dr. Jones on the phone. Yeah. Uh, so um, we, uh, so I went there, and I decided what I, what I told them I would do for the six weeks was talk about what kind of community of moral discourse you'd have to be to be able to sustain disagreements about controversial matters. And they said, oh, that sounds great. Come ahead. So the first week, I opened up to the, to the letter to the Ephesians, where at the end of the fourth chapter, there's a really interesting passage that begins with, um, because we are members of one another, let us speak the truth to one another. And then it says, goes on to say, be angry, do not sin. And then it goes on, and then at the end of the, the passage, it comes back around to how you talk to one another. Put away from you all bitterness, anger, wrath, slander, uh, malice. And there's this curious verse in the middle that my colleague uh, Stephen Fallon put me onto that says, thieves should give up stealing. And if you look at the Greek, the Greek actually isn't really thieves as we would think of as professional criminals. They, it's really those who are stealing should give up stealing and uh, let them la rather labor and work with their own hands. 
And, and so when you look at it and you say, well, how does that fit in relation to the rest of this passage, which is about the nature of a community? And uh, Stephen and I talked about it. We came to the conclusion that what it's really talking about is what political scientists call the free rider problem. That is, people who are part of a community, they take stuff, but they're not putting in their fair share. You know, it's the kind of dorm room where, let's just call it a six-pack of soda in the refrigerator, and somebody keeps drinking the soda, and they don't ever go to the store and buy the soda. Um, and so I said, look, Ephesians here is suggesting that a common life means you're sharing resources, which would include money. Um, and so that says something about what it means to be a Christian community, that you're involved in this process. Jesus actually says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I said, next week, well, this was a fairly wealthy Presbyterian church. And so I said, next week, let's all bring in our checkbooks. And pass them to the person on your left who is not related to you and have them look at the checkbook and tell you where your priorities are. Well, you could have thought you would have thought that I had taken this previously divided church and created unity for them. The unity was the idea that it had been a big mistake to invite me to come and talk. Um, they were horrified at the very idea that I would bring this up. Um, and I said, well, look, you know, you all were all exercised in talking about the sexuality statement. Um, the New Testament actually says comparatively little about sex. It says an awful lot about money. Um, why is that? And why is it in American culture? We'll have people go on Jerry Springer and talk about all sorts of weird sexual practices. Uh, I, don't, and yet, I never get the time to watch that. No. Yeah, you ought to watch it more often. <laughs> Your trouble is you have a deeds job that requires you to do things. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, but on the other hand, we don't want to talk about money. Uh, and, and so what does that involve? And I think that that's part of I, I think that it's important to be ambivalent Christianly about money, as it is also about power. But it's precisely by not talking about it, not putting it on the table, that we become most captive to it. It's interesting how the scriptural language, we often uh, have turned it into money is the root of all evil, which is actually not what the text says. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, those are two very different uh, notions with different implications. And it's only when we actually can make money something that matters that we're actually going to be reflective about and serious about that we can take it uh, with the appropriate level of ambivalence uh, and also subject it to ongoing discernment with one another about whether we're using it well or not. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, talking about what the, the scriptures tell us about money, one of the things is that in Acts 2 we find that people had all things in common, Acts it turns out pretty badly for people who didn't want to bring theirs to the table, as, as many of us might remember. Um, but one of the one of the uh, the applications that's been taken by many people is to say, well, that the first thing we learn about money is that we give away the first tenth of whatever we receive. Um, one of the things that that, that exercises me uh, as a as a dean now as a the control of a cert certain budget, nothing like, of course, the quite extraordinary budget that the Divinity School has. Look at his building and look at mine. Um, is, do, does that apply to money that people give to you or just to money that one feels one's earned oneself? If somebody is approaching you with a, with a gift of a certain amount and they have in their mind the idea that this will be for that kind of theology and certainly not that kind of theology, which is the kind of gift that most people have in mind, um, 
does one then say to them, well, the way we do things here is we give the first 10% away? Do you see what I mean? Because yeah. I mean, with it, the, the, the scriptures give us some instructions, and we obviously ignore a good number of them. Um, but but do Maybe we do at the chapel? Not we, yeah, yeah, no, no, okay, I understand. Yeah, but we at the chapel find a way of getting around a good number of those. Um, but but I've heard that you tend to stick to them pretty strongly over here. <laughs> well, I think there's. Uh, I mean, actually, it's an interesting dynamic, in, uh, particularly in churches, and you know, part of the tension that we face is the divinity school is preparing people to be leaders of churches, but we're not ourselves a church. And so it's a tricky kind of dynamic, and, and it's an ongoing matter of discernment for faculty uh, and the whole community to try to figure out in what senses we are and what senses we aren't. Um, among other things, if I was leader of a church, I wouldn't be reporting to a provost, but that's a whole other uh, matter. The, the question, I think churches have actually done some creative thinking about that in relation to capital campaigns that when they've been focused around um, raising money for particular capital needs to build in a 10% presumption that would go to mission, uh, sometimes it's even more than 10% on that presumption that it's not just about us, it's also about, uh, about others. Um, in my view, the clearly in talking with individuals, and it's one of the things people ask me, you know, what would I think about fundraising? Uh, and I always just thought, well, that just puts it like you're just asking people to dig deeper. I don't know what it's like for my colleagues in other schools to, to raise money, uh, where it's kind of saying dig deep for the old alma mater. Um, for me, it's a matter of talking to people about stewardship generally. And so rarely do I have a conversation about just what they're going to give to the Divinity School. I'm also talking to them about what they give to their church, what they give to other um, projects. And so it begins part of a larger uh, initiative. And obviously what I most want them to do is to give unrestricted money that then becomes a means by which we can uh, do that in a variety of contexts to support international field education, to support uh, varieties of uh, initiatives. Uh, it's, it's a tricky kind of uh, conversation because sometimes you do have people who are very strong-willed about their own uh, philanthropy and their own uh, giving. I've heard there are such people. Yeah, I'm sure I got them all. Uh, but, uh, you know, on, on the other hand, what I find is if you're willing to talk about money and you're willing to talk about what it is designed to do, uh, we're not really in the retail mission business at the Divinity School. Um, what we're about is, uh, and I've actually expanded the, the thinking a bit, it, you know, it used to be the kind of give a person a fish and you feed them for a day, teach a person to fish and you feed them for a lifetime, that we're in the teaching enterprise to enable people to go beyond that. But I actually think that, and this is particularly a broader challenge about where the church is today, that I think the broader challenge for the Divinity School is not just to teach people to fish, but we got to be looking at the whole character of the fishing industry. Um, and so to have conversations with people about what the church's mission is, how it's being served. My general experience, and this was one of the great surprises and blessings, is the conversations with lay people um, who wish the church talked a lot more about money than it does. One of the first conversations I went to visit... Not, not of that Presbyterian church. Not that Presbyterian <laughs> church, to be sure. I went to, I went to visit a guy who's actually now given us, um, well, lots and lots of money, uh, although mostly quietly. Um, but when I went to visit him, I was sitting down, and he said, why don't preachers preach about money? He said, preachers don't talk about money. I said, I will. Uh... And he said, look, I'm rich. And when I die, Jesus is going to ask me what I did with my resources. And I'm going to be held accountable. 
and the church isn't helping hold me accountable. Well, the institutional leader in me said, I can help. Maybe. Uh, that's right. Yes, that's right. But I actually paused because I didn't want to go too quickly to my own self-interest. And I just said, well, why do you think that is? And we actually had a conversation. And it's developed into um, a fairly significant friendship. And the interesting thing is that 10 years have passed. And I had lunch with him uh, about three weeks ago. And we sat down and he reminded me of that conversation. And what was striking to me was that he thought that uh, the church wasn't rising to the challenge. And I think that's one of the concerns. Um, this is somebody who is a self-made person. He doesn't give money to scholarships. Uh, and the reason is, he says, I, may, I paid my way through college as a Bible salesman. Well, this is a guy who could sell ice to Eskimos. And so I say to him, you know, look, we can't, I, I'm not going to be a successful deed telling prospective students, you know, here's your job going door to door selling Bibles to pay your way through divinity school. Uh, but he's not interested. He was self, he, he was raised dirt poor and yet uh, became an extraordinarily successful business person. And he's got this huge imagination. And too often, whether it's about money or it's about ideas, what he hears from the church is a kind of um, thudding of not much is at stake, not much is important. What uh, uh, my friend John Wimmer calls mediocrity masquerading as faithfulness. Uh, and what he wanted was to know, do you care about big things? Do you think that, th that this gospel really matters? And if it does, challenge me. Uh, and I think that's a really important issue. Because a lot of those big ideas, you know, Duke University would not exist, not only because of James B. Duke's vision, but actually in the early uh, decades, uh, when it was still Trinity College, there were three Methodist lay people who wrote a monthly check to keep what then was just a kind of strange experiment that nobody knew if it would last, called Trinity College, afloat. One of those three people is, uh, was James Gray, for whom the Gray Building, where the Divinity School Library and the Religion Department are, uh, is James Gray actually didn't give any money to Duke University, but he kept Trinity College afloat. Uh, and in my mind, um, when the church has been strongest, it's been creating all sorts of new institutions and new experiments that cost money, but it's not about the money. It's about what that money enables the church to do in bearing witness to God and in serving uh, the wide diversity of human needs. Uh, shortly after I came here, I brought a... a a European friend to look at the Divinity School, um, and and I, I, I stood him uh, in the, uh, the the sort of entrance way to Goodson Chapel, uh, and I said, "Well, what do you what do you think of this?" <laughs> and uh, he he was speechless. Uh, he just said, "This is a completely different world." And I said, well, tell me a bit more about what's different about this world. This, and he said, this, this could never happen in Europe. Uh, and I said, well, tell you a bit more. And he said, well, there's, there's two reasons why this could never happen in Europe. Um, reason number one is that most people think the churches will be finished in a generation. And reason number two uh, is that even those who don't couldn't live with people saying, how dare you build a building like this when there's people dying? Mm. Um, of course, I answered that very neatly in about 30 seconds, but I wondered if you could, I could give you a whole minute. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a whole minute to respond to those, those two uh, 
obviously very European and very, I mean, no one would ask those questions over here. I appreciate that. But, but so let, let, let's just imagine, let's just imagine that those kind of questions were of interest, maybe one, one or two people here. How would you uh, respond? I'm just glad to know you have friends. Yeah, it's that's good. A, yeah. They, uh, we're talking about a couple of years ago now. Oh, okay. That's, that's right. That's good. I was guessing they came to see Joe. And yeah, no, no, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we wrestled. We wrestled with that question um, at the outset. And and first, I'd say, well, let me answer the first question first. Um, I I clearly would not have become a dean if I didn't think that Duke Divinity School was well positioned to be able to uh, have a bright future. Um, I I'm not interested either temperamentally. Uh, well, just temperamentally, I couldn't cope with the reclamation project. So that uh, I know people who are really good at that, you know, and they actually are kind of addicted to crisis. And so, you know, give them a real mess and they're there in a heartbeat. That would be a disaster for me temperamentally. Um, but also, I just, life's too short. I would have been quite happy continuing to read and write um, where I was. And, you know, the Jesuits, it'll take at least another generation after the Methodists before anything would die. They're a resilient group. Um, so I, I thought Duke really did have a future. And uh, my first conversation with President Cohan, uh, when I met with her, I said, well, what are you looking for in a divinity school? And she said, well, you know, I was in graduate school at Yale in the 1960s. Uh, I was in the political science department, but my husband at the time was over at the divinity school. And it was the liveliest, most interesting place on campus. And it really had a powerful impact on us. And I'd like Duke Divinity School to be like that. And I thought, well, there's a pretty uh, audacious hope that would be worth investing your time in. Um, and Duke as a university has always been a place where, because we're a young university, we haven't really ever gotten stuck in the past uh, in the same way. Uh, I mean, one way I describe it is to say we have uh, fewer hardening of the categories because we're young. Uh, and so there's a lot of opportunities. And because we're in the American South, the church is stronger, and so there was a much greater sense of vitality. So that um, I think that I came to Duke out of a conviction that the church has a really bright hope for the future, even if too many parts of America want to replicate the European disdain and secularization thesis, um, that everything's on a downhill trajectory. So the building... Uh, had already been on the docket, but there wasn't any funding for it. Um, in fact, uh, what became the Westbrook building that we're sitting in in Goodson Chapel was actually supposed to be phase two of the building then at the time known as New Divinity. They didn't build it in the 1960s because it was going to cost $350,000. outrageous. Um, and at that time, it really was a question of feeding the poor. And so they decided they would just defer it. And so it had been on the drawing board for 40 years. It was providential. I'm not a Calvinist uh, in a strong sense of that, but uh, uh, Susan actually found the drawings of what the, new, the second phase of New Divinity would have been. Mm. <laughs> not good. Uh, so the question was, what would we build? Well, in the meantime, the Bryan Center had been built on the other side of Duke Chapel. And that was a problem, uh, architecturally and otherwise. And so the trustees were not exactly eager to build something on the other side of Duke Chapel with any kind of proximity. So the first design was to actually build something out toward the telecom building. 
uh, well, at the time, the Divinity School was already sufficiently elongated, and I had a vision, if we had built the building out that way, that we'd have actually had offices in different time zones. Um, and that was a really bad idea. And what we really needed was to do something that would accentuate the sense of the Divinity School as a community. We wanted a place to eat together, chapel. And so we started looking, and we almost didn't build at all because the building was going to cost $7 million. And I looked at our donor pool and at the other needs for financial aid, for faculty and everything, and I said, this, I don't see how the math can work. Um, but we took it to our Board of Visitors, and it's actually a kind of poignant uh, day um, because I just found out earlier today that the man who gave the speech died this week. Um, but he was the husband of a Board of Visitor member, uh, a retired CEO of a company. Very impressive, uh, admirable person. And after I had talked about, should we build a building? Is that the right use of the Divinity School's money? Uh, or should we figure out other ways to address the space crunch needs? We were, you know, converting closets into offices and things. And uh, I just said, I'm really worried about the money and the priorities. And this man stopped and he said, am I allowed to speak? We have a pretty informal gathering and we said sure and he said Joe Bryan was a friend of mine the Bryan Center he said I'm sure Joe Bryan would have given more money to do a beautiful building he said but he was never asked he said you need to build this building because it's crucial to the future of the Divinity School and the church has a much longer future than you or I and he said whatever you do don't cut corners. Don't start with the money. He said, remember what you are building is for the honor and glory of God. Make it beautiful. He said, if you do, the money will follow. Uh, everybody in the room just sat there. I mean, nobody knew quite what to say. I gulped thinking, yeah, but you don't have to raise the money. Um, but we all knew he was right. Uh, and so we just said, well, we're going to trust that um, we've really looked at it and maybe we'll try. And I was thinking that the building was $7 million. We asked if we could do something out, well, right where we are now, which at the time was a big hole, um, not very attractive hole. And um, the university said only if you hire the best architects you can find. And I was pretty naive, and I didn't have any idea what the money would be like, that we would be paying more than those that $350,000 in architects' fees pretty quickly. We've interviewed architects. They said um, too many, the, the architects we ended up selecting said, too many architects build cutting-edge buildings of their time. We build timeless buildings of their place. And we thought, well, if there's anybody who's going to build in the shadow of Duke Chapel, this is probably important. So we started that commitment and down that road, and we really did remain focused on building to the honor and glory of God. Uh, it kept getting more expensive. Every time we went to another meeting, now we expanded the space we needed, um, but it still kept getting more expensive because of the Duke Stone, the price... I, I tried to tell the people over at the business school, um, they have all the money, and they can build buildings for about $120 a square foot. Our building was about $500 a square foot. Uh, but we just kept what 
Lewis said in view about doing it for the honor and glory of God and it was a matter of trust and confidence and hope um, and a sense of always going to the university and saying sure we'll get the money raised and then going out the door and saying oh my goodness what did I just say but what he ultimately said was really true and uh, along the way I had a conversation where we said all right the building has gone up to 15 million dollars I said, I think that we're really beginning to have challenges that pits the building over against student financial aid, which I'd been telling the board was my highest priority and was absolutely critical. And uh, again, another wise person on the board said, you can't ever think of them as either or, it's a both and. And said, if you build this right, it will attract more commitment and more people who will see that you have confidence that the church has a bright future. And, again, it was a kind of gulp, and I'm trusting you all. But, indeed, in point of fact, almost every major donor to this building, I think I could, I think I could say everyone, but I'll hedge my bets by saying almost everyone, has also given to student financial aid in the process. What happened was the building ended up costing $22 million. So if you go back to my nervousness at 7, um, and it's all paid for. Um, and people have given beyond that. But it also sent an extraordinary signal to the trustees, including some very non-religious trustees who were perplexed at why the Divinity School, A, cared about something so much and was willing to do something, in their view, so beautiful. Um, that they said, you know, of all the buildings that have been built on Duke's campus, several of them have said the Divinity School's addition is the most beautiful. And it signaled something about a concern about quality, but it also asked them to think about the connection of beauty and God, um, which I think is an important dimension that we sometimes lose sight of in a short-sighted focus. Uh, if it wasn't linked to a pretty deep and rich uh, commitment to the gospel, you know, if we built this just for ourselves and then accommodated our teaching no longer to uh, be willing to address issues about money, poverty, um, those sorts of dynamics in the sense of the whole fishing industry, um, then it would have been a mistake. But I think we now have the kind of space that not only signals something in the university, but also provides the kind of space that helps to bear witness to the larger purposes of God uh, in the world. But it's still, uh, it's still a challenge, and I wrestle with it. And I wrestle with it whenever I ask somebody to give money to the Divinity School, whether it's for the building or for a scholarship, knowing that in some sense, um, when Susan and I were in Lithuania, or no, I'm sorry, in Estonia, um, they said, the trouble was we need to start a whole bunch of new churches. And I said, well, what's preventing you? They said, well, we need more money. I said, well, how much? And they said, well, we can't start a new church until we have about $5,000. I think, oh, well, if you start to just think in those trade-offs, the math looks really bad. But if you think about the role that a divinity school as a part of Duke University can play in terms of its visibility, in terms of forming people who can then go out and keep multiplying the impact in service to the gospel, then it's a different kind of formula and issue. Can I just play back to, to you something I think I've heard you say, and see if you did say that. Long-winded answer, <laughs> which sorry. Is, which is that um, there's something that we could call beauty that 
that crosses over this either or because the the kind of gestures that start churches in Lithuania and that sustainably address the causes of poverty in the two-thirds world uh, can be called beautiful and this building can be called beautiful and and those and and that analogy is is a sustainable, is a genuine one. It's not a, it's not a sort of trick of words, and that somehow, going back to fifty years ago and forty years ago, the you know this 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 what we might call the sixties idea, which is very much based on an either or, um, that that you have to renounce in a sense institutional life in order to be personal and genuine. That actually it's it's. Curiously, what I hear you saying is that you're almost saying the opposite of that. It's actually it's institutions that rescue us from the self-deceptions of the personal. Is that, is that I fair? agree. And that beauty. That Long actually, answer than a short one. I that, agree. That beauty is is the way in which they they do that. Yeah. They they prevent beauty from a sort of self-deceiving, um, feathering one's own nest. Yes. And I think I think beauty particularly for Protestants, is a, such a hugely under-resourced theological notion. <laughs> what a diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, and it's got, to be, it's got to be patterned in Christ, but it plays a huge role, and we've got to be much more attentive to that than, than we have been. And I think you put it well in terms of the importance of a variety of institutions in, uh, in cultivating that. Okay. Well, we, we've, uh, we've been going for a bit, um, and, and um, what I haven't done is ask you a question I think I, I kind of promised I'd ask you at the beginning, um, which is to say, this building's built, um, and let's say financial aid is at Princeton levels. Be still my soul. Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that's, that's just beyond the imagination uh, of us all, but... Um, uh, let, let's imagine that those two, that, you know, that the, 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 the spatial needs and the financial needs of, of the students and faculty are taken care of. You included faculty in that? Uh, I did. That slipped out. Didn't it? Wow. Yeah, it's part of that. Yeah, we hadn't mentioned. Now that. you've gone beyond Princeton level. We hadn't mentioned the F word before. Um, um, what would you do with a hundred million dollars once once those things are taken out? Well, I had my, my seminary roommate sent me a message and said that uh, when he saw that this topic was going to be addressed, he said, I'm assuming you'll tell people that the first $10 million you'll give to urban pastors uh, for their needs out in the field. Okay. He happens to be an urban pastor. What would you do with $90 um, million? No, but, uh, <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is I think uh, that what I would want to do is something around uh, the changing the nature of the fishing industry. Um, what I think is really crucial is to cultivate ways for people around the world, both through degree programs and non-degree programs, to develop the capacity to be able to exercise leadership and service to the gospel. So that um, there was a conference here at Duke last Thursday and Friday um, that Fuqua and the Global Health Institute co-sponsored, that there's a need for a million more healthcare workers in Africa. And you just take a deep breath and you think about what that means. 
um, the, the needs are just huge, whether it's uh, a local soup kitchen, whether it's uh, AIDS and malaria uh, in those ways. Um, and yet, when you have the capacity building for those sorts of institutions, that you can then develop the uh, theological understandings, the missional awareness, the biblical literacy, all in the service of bearing witness to God in powerful ways. So that when I think about the United States, when Methodists were most alive, we were founding universities all across the country. You could chart across um, the Northeast, Boston, Syracuse, Northwestern, and then the University of Denver, uh, and on out to the University of Southern California. Not many people realize that USC actually started out as a Methodist uh, university. Then you run across the south, you've got Duke and Emory and Vanderbilt and SMU, uh, not to mention scores of liberal arts colleges. Uh, you add then in the hospitals, the hospices, the other healthcare institutions, um, the, the means of bearing witness in uh, soup kitchens and other food. Capacity building in institutions was extraordinary. It was driven by a deeply mission-minded awareness. Uh, that was rooted in the Great Commission, but a rich biblical sense of the story from Genesis to Revelation, um, of the story of God that we find ourselves caught up in. Uh, there's huge needs in the United States, but there are also the needs in Africa, and some of the most profound human needs for education, for the environment, for health care, are going to be linked to the capacity of faith communities to be able to address that. And so if I had $100 million, you know, that's in some ways not any money. I mean, it's, I take it for the Divinity School, uh, much less for my local, I mean, my home budget. But in the grand scheme of thinking about the needs of the world and even of the needs of universities, uh, universities like Duke, $100 million isn't all that much money. It could disappear very quickly. But it could do an extraordinary amount to build capacity that then gets multiplied several times over. Uh, and so, you know, how can a place like Duke help address the, the theological needs in Africa? Well, we can send people over one, time, one person at a time. It's a really good thing to do, and it affects us more than it impacts them in many significant ways. But if we can take that to a capacity, you know, think about what Habitat for Humanity did. It was a pretty audacious goal, a guy named Millard Fuller. Uh, he wanted to end poverty housing in one county in Georgia. But it became something that built capacity to where I've actually participated in a habitat build in a township in South Africa. Uh, I've talked to the director who's working with Protestant Catholics in Northern Ireland. Um, that begins to be huge. Hospice care. 50 years ago, no one would have even recognized the word. And now it's doing powerful witness to the gospel and caring for people at the end of life. Um, so that I'd want to spend the money to create something that could multiply and keep the ripple effects going outward. Because when Christians have been at our uh, most mission-minded focus, our education has always been in the service of mission. And that education has borne witness in really uh, powerful ways that's not an either-or, that's cared about quality, it's cared about 
uh, bearing witness in varieties of settings with a kind of, uh, dare I say it in this company, improvisational spirit. Uh, that's that's extraordinarily important. Yeah, I think someone should. Uh, but I think that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of freedom, excitement, and uh, you know, I don't know exactly what James B. Duke's uh, three million dollars that it cost to build Duke Chapel uh, would mean in today's dollars, uh, but it'd probably get close uh, to uh, to getting up into the tens of digits. And you think about the witness that it has borne and the inspiration that it has provided, uh, both as architecture and, more importantly, for the worship, the music, the preaching, the ministries uh, that bear witness to that. Uh, we need to be bold and ambitious uh, in new ways uh, for the church's gospel. And why is it that, you know, if we've got people who are dreaming of new things like Teach for America that Wendy Kopp imagined a decade ago, why is it that the church has become so settled or even fearful in thinking that our best days are in the past? I know you could do a whole lot better than that. Uh, so I'd like you to tell the person next to you how you could do a whole lot better than that <laughs> in the 30 seconds I'm going to give you. And then... If you, if you think the person has just told you something worth saying, give them a nudge and tell them to put their hand up and then ask a question or, or put one of us straight. Okay, <laughs> so 30 seconds for you and then we'll be back with the program. Okay, that's, that's, just, that's just my way of applauding you for the quality of answers you've come up with. Um, who'd like to... Um, Traditionally, uh, indicate that, uh, that 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 there's more to be said, <laughs> or that the person next to them really should pluck up courage to, to say it. Great. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, we were we were talking. We was conversating about uh, all of the other organizations uh, in the world that. Uh, are giving money to and as the church we have to find out uh, a way to uh, to be attractive for that money to come to the church uh, without being complacent in the, in the situation that we're in now so that was basically what we were talking about Try to elaborate on that I, mean, I, I suppose uh, what I hear partly in that is is, a, is, a, is that money, in fact, provides a kind of discipline for the church and for the divinity schools, that, that people who have a lot of money have a lot of money because they're pretty careful with their money, and they're, they're not likely to dish it around to somebody who isn't going to spend it very wisely. So we have to make our churches and our divinity schools, those of us who run divinity schools, um, Places that are worth giving that money to. They're, they're good good stewards of other people's money. That we all, in that sense, we all live on other people's money. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would add um, that I think that's exactly right. And there was a virtue in the insanity of um, the situation that I came into. Namely, that Duke Divinity School, when I became dean, was widely seen as one of the top theological schools in the United States 
uh, in the top handful, and our, the size of our endowment was 33rd among theological schools. So the craziness was we were trying to do things on a shoestring that we really had no right to do. Uh, we were trying to accomplish a lot more than we really had the capacity. Now, the virtue of that was it meant that uh, we had to be real entrepreneurial and resourceful in trying to figure out how are we going to make the case that we really do matter. Um, now, the problem with that is it was very tiring to go out and listen to lots of people um, in churches, bishops, judicatory leaders, as well as people who could write checks. Um, but it was also extraordinarily important because they didn't want to just say, well, gosh, you're a nice guy and you've driven all this way or you've flown. Um, you know, I've made long flights to be told no um, more than once. Uh, but what it meant was we had to be able to make a case for what was at stake. And they weren't going to give, because they were Duke alumni, they could give to athletics or to other areas of the university if they just wanted to do something for the old alma mater. So it really became a teaching question and an outcomes uh, kind of question of, okay, if I come to you in five years, the donor says to me, what are you going to show me you've done? And so being relatively lean in our budget, um, I think actually Princeton, for all of its financial resources, has been rather um, stayed. They haven't had to be pushed. Uh, and so there's some sense in which declining budgets for churches, uh, when it reaches a certain threshold, can actually be either the death knell, because you just keep acting more and more fearfully until you die, or you reach a point where it becomes the cause for a rededicated sense of mission. And you have to then really focus on what is it that matters most. The sad commentary is that I know way too many local churches that are content to die a slow, painful death, rather than really become refocused on the mission of the church and the gospel. And that's not only local, it's also denominational. Well, I was going to ask you that exact question. How does that, how does it flip, how does that play itself out on a denominational level where, uh, you know, the, the general concept of this church decides to put $10 million for African University it is, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago or so and is not, no longer doing any new initiatives like that? I mean, how does that play itself out financially on the denominational level? For the, the future dying in a fearful nature and such. Um. First John famously has the line, perfect love casts out fear. I think the corollary is equally true. The perfect fear casts out love. Uh, that you get more and more paralyzed by fear. And the more you get paralyzed by it, the worse the spiral downward goes. And it happens with money in very visible ways. That if you start to become fearful, you start to clutch on to what you have, which means you're not going to have as much as what you once had, and then it just keeps deteriorating uh, in that isolation. Um, one of the things that's been funny, uh, just institutional, well, it's not funny, I took a long series of conversations, but the provost finally has understood, every year I go to him, we have to have a, this year's budget and then the two out years, and every year I've gone to him, the two out years show a deficit. 
Um, I, I said it was funny because he just couldn't figure this out. And I said, well, you know, we live in hope. Hmm. Um, he f used to think it was fantasy, but we kept being able to do it. But partly, if you aren't always stretching yourself, you're not being willing to be focused on faith. Now, you have to be able to distinguish the virtue of faith from fantasy. But fear tends to lead to a logic of shrinkage. And that's where most denominations are. Um, they're caught up in that. They haven't reinvented themselves or been very improvisational. Uh, and they've also had the wrong sense of a pyramid, that um, denominations exist to serve local congregations. And the basic mentality in America has been to have congregations serve denominations. And ironically, uh, for all of our criticisms in divinity schools of that wicked business world, Business actually often has far better insights consistent with the gospel than contemporary denominations. We just have the bad business ideas of 25 years ago. Businesses, because they actually are accountable to someone, have often become far more responsive and improvisational than have the denominations and the congregations. And so we're just spiraling and there's, uh, it, it can get terribly depressing. Uh, one of the conversations my brother and I have, my brother's the Methodist bishop in Kansas, and by virtue of his office as a trustee at SMU. You know, when, when he goes to a trustee meeting at SMU, or when I go to a trustee meeting at Duke, um, they expect you to be at the top of your game. They expect you to be thinking, strategically focused, and because they know something really matters. There's actually a lot of goodwill for the divinity school and the university, but they want to know... Uh, are you really excited about the future of the divinity school? And I contrast it with my brother to going to typical Methodist denominational meetings, or I've been to my share of Baptist and others. Um, and you go there, and there's just a kind of ugh, sluggishness. And the contrast is really striking. That, you know, here's a university, or you can hear businesses that will talk about their mission statement, and they talk about ways in which they're trying to serve the mission. You go to the denominational meeting and it's sloppily organized and you just sense well these people don't think much is at stake and yet you know when you really see the power of the gospel when you see the kinds of uh, experiences it's just unbelievable what's at stake when we really serve it and claim it and when you see those churches when you see those kinds of uh, contexts um, people will drive a long way uh, I drove five hours from Johannesburg, South Africa, to a place that felt like the end of the world, to find the most amazing woman in a situation where AIDS was about 80%, unemployment was about 75%. She had started a school. Most of the kids uh, were orphans. And yet this woman, just by sheer force of her own commitment and vision, was improvising a way that provided extraordinary education. Now, Susan and I were just blown away by this experience, and on the way out, we learned that the person who had carried the South African flag at the 96 Olympics had started out as an orphan in that school. There's where you see that kind of mission focus, the kind of ambition, and the first thing we did when we got back was write a check to that school, because I thought, boy, there's something important happening there. Would that divinity schools, seminaries, chapels on campuses had that kind of vision on a consistent basis. Uh, I think we've just um, had a pretty uh, 
thorough exposure to why we're very, very blessed to have Greg Jones as the Dean of our Divinity School. I, I hope uh, the last hour has given you encouragement. Uh, I, I hope it's also uh, given you some challenge. Uh, I know I, I was shaped by exactly the culture that Greg so successfully dismantled in his early remarks that uh, we really shouldn't build this thing up, that we shouldn't talk about money too much, and if we did talk about money, it was how we should make sure other people had it and we didn't have it. And I think that brought me into ministry with a, with, without a clue what to do with money. Uh, and, and I had to find other ways uh, to find out. I think Greg's given us uh, as good a description uh, as we could hope to find of what we could think about doing with money. Uh, and he's challenged us to say, if we've got better ideas, we should put them into practice. Uh, I think you'll join me in thanking him very much indeed. Just th thank you all for coming out today. I know uh, exams are coming up for those of you who are students. If you'd like to do a little stress eating, there's still some pizza. And our next Dean's Dialogue is February 19th at the School of the Environment with Dean Shemides, and we hope to see you there. Thank you so much for coming out, and thank you to the Deans.